From the most exotic locations on Earth, Moonraker will transport you to another world. Holly was a warm girl with the right connections. Could this possibly be the moment for us to pool our resources? We would be better off working together. More excitement, more thrills, more spills. And guess who's dropped in for a bite? Jaws is back. From Earth to the most spectacular adventure in space, Moonraker. It's out of this world. What exactly are you up to here, Drax? Moonraker 1, liftoff. Moonraker 2, liftoff. Moonraker 3, liftoff. city in space. James Bond and the treacherous Dr. Goodhead. Despite your efforts, my finely wrought dream approaches its fulfillment. Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host, Rob Wallace, and as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be joined by my co-host, Mr. Rob Daniel. Hello Rob, yes, and it is a pleasure to be talking to you again over the magic of Zencaster. The seamless magic of Zencaster. Thank God for the platforms on the internet that mean that we can still do the podcast in some shape and form. Today uh, we'll be discussing Moonraker. Well, actually, sorry, do, do you want to provide the proper context to this? I've Because uh, believe it or not, we've never done a Bond podcast before. So we are now on April the 13th, so we really, in another timeline a much nicer timeline, would probably have a No Time to Die episode out because that was supposed to be released at the beginning of April. Obviously, that was originally, I think, was moved back to November because a film called No Time to Die isn't really going to be that high on people's watch list right now, as even if it is a James Bond film, but we will see if November happens even. But we thought, well, actually, it would still be nice to have a Bond film for April as April typically is the month that has Easter, and these Bond films always have a bank holiday connection as well. So yes, it was then decided that we would do a Bond episode. And, well, there are many, many films like Goldfinger, Doctor No, Casino Royale, all the legitimately really good Bond films. But I think they've been done to death. From Russia With Love. From Russia With Love, of course, which I think is now my favourite. Yeah, same here. It just looks like what a Hitchcock Bond would have been. And it's uh, got my favourite uh, henchman of any of the films. Is that Rosa Klebb? Uh, no, it is in fact Red Grant. Oh, right, uh, okay. Rosa Klebb is uh, is definitely uh, top five. Although I would say, having rewatched the uh, the film that we're going to talk about, actually, a villain I have always loved has even has gone up even further in my estimation. All right, well, we'll get onto that in a bit then, because yes, of course, today we are going to be talking about Moonraker, which is 
often seen as the silliest of all the Bond films, which I think it has a claim to, but unlike some of the later silly Bond films like Die Another Day, I think Moonraker is actually worth talking about and has some very interesting stuff in there. And it's an all-in-one Bond film. Everything that is good and bad about Bond, I think, is in this movie. Oh yeah, Moonraker is packed. You know, it's two hours long and just goes basically from one set piece to another, Mm. only pausing for um, Hugo Drax to deliver a Bond knot. That's right. So yeah, so the reason why we're doing this is because this, for some reason... (laughs) Is one of your favourites, isn't it? You really like Moonraker. I, I absolutely love Moonraker. It was one of the earliest Bond films I can remember seeing. And, and for some reason, I think, I think just because it is so replete with just one action sequence after another. And, and I'm not a big fan of the comedy, to be honest. Which, you know, maybe... I think, I think Roger Moore has never been my favourite Bond, largely just because I don't think the humour's dated that well, largely. But I absolutely love Moonraker. There is something in there for everyone. If you want battles in midair, you know, skydiving, and if you want a double-taking pigeon, if you, you know, it's sort of, you know, oh, you don't like this bit, don't worry, there's another one coming along in a minute. Interesting. So you don't like the comedy, but this is the most comedic of all the more Bond films, I think. I but anyway, we'll get onto that in just a second. But uh, but before we begin any of the discussion about why this film is great and why some of it is not so great, what is Moonraker about? Uh, shall I do the IMDb synopsis, or shall I... Uh... Yeah, let's have a look at what the IMDb synopsis says. James Bond investigates the mid-air theft of a space shuttle and discovers a plot to commit global genocide. It's to the point, yeah? Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. It's more or less what happens. (laughs) More or less indeed. (laughs) (laughs) So this one was made in 1979, two years after The Spy You Love Me. Uh, The Spy You Love Me was the biggest Bond film to date at that point. It was released the Jubilee year. So tied in very well the same way that Skyfall was released on the 50th anniversary of Bond and was seen as a celebration of all the things that are very, very good about Britain and England. So Spy Love Me had just really caught a mood of celebration and it has to be said is a very, very enjoyable Bond film. And of course, at the end of the Spy Love Me, it says James Bond will return in Fiora's Eyes only. But then we had Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and... Cubby Broccoli and the other producers of Bond would never miss out on a trend. So therefore, the next Bond film was quickly moved from being for your eyes only to being Moonraker. And proving that if a formula works once, it will work twice, they decided to remake The Spy Who Loved Me and pretty much do the same story all over again, but set it in space rather than at sea. Even with that, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me is basically a remake of You Only Live Twice, which was a Sean Connery, also directed by Lewis Gilbert, who did Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. So, yeah, back in those days, they really could recycle very well. Even when recycling wasn't particularly fashionable, the Bond films were recycling. Yeah, and that's the thing. I don't think I don't think it detracts from any of them in particular. I mean, obviously, I mean, that's kind of the, the kind of schematic the formula for which Bond is known is like there's an inciting incident something happens that draws the bad guys to the attention of the British government who then dispatch Bond to investigate I'm gonna be very interested to see what No Time to Die does because that's one thing that you know Bond films have grappled with I know we've talked about in in the Daniel Craig era where the idea of sending one bloke off to deal with what is probably a major geopolitical issue (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, just uh, seems a bit passe. It's like we're just sending sending the one guy. We're set, we're sending this guy, the guy you know, the the misogynist with a drinking problem. 
Well, I suppose at the end of Spectre, he he had a team because M and Moneypenny were doing things around around the mission as well, weren't they? Yeah, so basically, the plot of Moonraker is pretty much what the IMDb says. So after a space shuttle goes missing, because this was all set in 1979, it was actually the space shuttle, uh, the real space shuttle was supposed to have launched by this point, by the time the film came out. And there was a running joke between the filmmakers and NASA, because they went to NASA and apparently NASA were very, very helpful, about who was going to get their space shuttle into space first. And the Bond film won, because I think in real life they were having some real trouble with the glue that was sticking uh, the heat tiles onto the space shuttle. So therefore they couldn't launch it and it had to be delayed by like a whole year. So I think it actually launched in 1980. So anyway. Did they just never think of, I don't know, like nailing them on? I mean, just, you know, rivets? I don't think. I'm just saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I'm not, I don't have their fancy degrees. I think that the rivets might have melted or something like that. Anyway, I'm not a scientist either. So it was a race to see who could put a shuttle into space first, and the Bond film won. So the film opens with a shuttle being hijacked. And it's really interesting because the shuttle is on the back of a Boeing 747, which is how they used to, and probably still do, move the space shuttles around. Transport them. Yeah. Yeah. And at the beginning... Do they ever explain why the British government needs the shuttle? I think it's just one of those things where it's it's on loan for their space programme so they can see what's being done by the Drax Corporation. Because, of course, it's Drax is the guy who is making the space shuttles for the American government. Do we have a space programme? Yeah, we've put men into space, haven't we? I think we've put women in space as well. Yeah, I just didn't get the... Imp- yeah, do you know what? I, I could have done with, I don't know, a little bit more, a little bit more context in terms of like, oh, we, we've just borrowed this shuttle from the Drax Corporation. It's like, okay, the British space race. I guess it's just not something I know anything about. Our part in all that. Sorry, yeah, our part in sort of the the exploration of space. I know that we've, I know there are many British astronauts. Just don't hear about what what actually goes on behind the behind the scenes. Yeah, I'm sure that a lot of this stuff is fancy for the film as well. But um, but no. yeah. So anyway, so he has to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> really, it's about, so England and Britain in this film is much more powerful than it ever was in real life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but uh, I just. I, that, I, 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 Part of, me, part of me watching it initially was like, is the only reason that these characters are British is because they don't think we're going to care if it's American, if they're Americans. He has to be like a plummy RAF officer. And there does have to be that touch of, you know, oh, you know, boys together in the cockpit. And uh, I mean, obviously it needs to be Britain. In- so you mean the pilot of the plane? Yeah, yes, yeah. And obviously it does need to be Britain in order for James Bond to get involved. But, you know, they could they could have come up with another reason. I'm, I'm still thinking it's just because they wanted British pilots. It could be. It could also be because it's... Because, yeah, British extras were just cheaper to get. Because this was all filmed... Actually, most of this was filmed in France. All the studio stuff was filmed in France because, apparently, taxation was so high in the UK at that time that it was much cheaper to shoot in France. So they basically went over to France um, and took over every single studio there for the space to make this movie. And Ken Adam was asked, is it okay to shoot in France? And he said, yeah, if I can get every single studio, then yes, we should be able to do that. I think they still use the Bond set at Pinewood for the space station stuff at the end, and all the effects were done in England. All the other stuff was done in France, and they also went off to LAX. I think they shot at, um, yeah, in LA at the airport, they shot in Florida, they shot in Brazil, and then they went to Guatemala or somewhere as well. It's um, So it really was like a huge huge production that had to one-up The Spy You Love Me. And the price tag at the time was $33 million. This is two years after Star Wars that came in at $7 million. So you can see just what a huge film they were making because there was so much location stuff they were doing and these enormous sets that were being built as well. So anyway, yeah, so 
So then Bond has to go off and find out about where the space shuttle has gone, because it hasn't been found in the wreckage. And that takes him off on one of his adventures, which takes him to America, which takes him uh, to South America. Uh, oh, um, and he goes to Venice at one point, doesn't he, as well? And Beyond. And ultimately, yes, goes into space. So, yeah, it's a bit of prep for this episode. I read the original Ian Fleming book, Moonraker. And you'll be surprised to find out that it has nothing to do with the film. Or the film has nothing to do with the book. So the Moonraker in the film is the fleet of shuttles. So you have Moonraker 1 through to 5 or something like that. In the book, it's a missile that is being made by this guy, Hugo Drax. And it's a missile that can travel further in Europe and into Russia than any other missile that's being created at that time. It's using this... Uh, yeah, this new technology, this new metal that Drax has found, that has been mined, and it will bring about peace in our time because this missile is an atomic weapon and because it can be launched anywhere, it can basically be used to keep the rest of Europe in check and also Russia. There's a death at the Moonraker, sorry, at the Drax plant, so Bond has to go and investigate that. And it's really, it's a really good read. I mean, it's only about 300 pages. It's, it's really swift. I think it's notable for being the only Bond that's set entirely in England. So it all takes place in London and Dover because the Drax plant is all in Dover, yeah, next to the White Cliffs. And yeah, I, 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 I hear they're moving away now. I hear they're, I hear they're, uh, they're leaving. Hey, because uh, sorry, that was meant to be a Brexit joke, but oh, okay, right. right. <laughs> sorry, that was. The... <laughs> yeah. They're going abroad now. They're moving to France, ironically. Yes, that's right. And it is good. I mean, it's one of those, because I've only read a couple of James Bond books, but it does read very well. It's really interesting in terms of, it's very lean, it's very efficient, it's very cool. Um, M is having a discussion with Bond. A lot of it is just very, very long conversations. M's having a discussion with Bond about Drax. And Drax is a war hero who was badly injured so half his face had to be rebuilt. Um, so he's got scarring from the war. Um, he came out with complete amnesia after he was in this explosion. So they think that he's Drax and he thinks that he's Drax. It's one of those things where it just seems as if he is this guy that they can't account for. He then makes his fortune because he's quite brilliant. He's a national hero. The whole thing about this Moonraker project to protect the country, but also to protect the world with this super weapon is seen as um, as this great humanitarian thing that is doing but then m says yeah there's just some there's just this one niggling doubt i've got and bond says what's that well he cheats at cards doesn't he oh that's very good because there's a whole thing that m belongs to this exclusive club called blades and it would be a real scandal if it was found out that one of their members was cheating because he would have basically been stealing money from other members and it might even threaten the ongoing survival of blades as a institution for gentlemen so there's all that sort of stuff in there but for a lot of the book you're not entirely sure if drax is a bad guy or not or if it's these german rocket scientists that he's had to recruit to help him with the moonraker project so you've got ex-nazis in there and stuff and you know that kind of thing as well which is kind of carried over in terms of drax his whole plan is that he wants to um, release a toxic weapon into the atmosphere to kill all of uh, the human race and then have his master race out in space that will come back and repopulate the Earth in the way that he wants it to be done, which I suppose is it kind of carries over from there. But there's only really um, a few things in the film that have anything to do with the book, and they're really, really small. There's uh, So the minister at one point says, um, we'd better not have any trouble, Bond. I played bridge with this fellow Drax. 
and there's a whole thing in the book about how they play bridge and Bond has to play bridge with him to prove that he's cheating. There's a very, very tiny thing when they're in that laboratory where the nerve agent gets released and gasses the scientists, where you see this rubber sealant on the doors and there's all these references in the book to rubber sealants kind of um, keeping some of the toxins out so that the people who are working on the Moonraker project don't yeah, get gassed. But the biggest thing is, um, so you remember at the end when Bond and Dr Holly Goodhead who's the Bond girl, who's played by Lois Childs, are in that office and they're going to be blown, or they're going to be burnt to a crisp by the rocket engines. There's a very, very yes, similar... Yes, the office that's also like the launch chamber. Yes. Well, the thing there is that Drax is going to completely destroy the facility because he doesn't need it anymore because he just needs it to get all these space shuttles up into space. And it's the same thing... In the book, he doesn't need the facility once he's launched this weapon. The whole thing is that he's going to launch this weapon against London. So he is a baddie in the book, but you find that out I mean, quite late. It's a, in the film, there's definitely something in that scene about, you know, economy of space. It's like, it's it's meeting room seven. It's also right under the rocket. Yes, that's right. It's like, I just feel like it'd be a very... I mean, A, you don't really get the sense that Drax probably has meetings because he just he just doesn't feel like a sit down and have a bunch of scientists, you know. You know, he doesn't feel he doesn't feel like a round table guy. He we wouldn't do well at Spectre. Um, <laughs> um and also I just wouldn't you just be sat in there being like, Are we are we okay in here? Like it right above us, you know. Oh don't don't worry, they'll give us they'll give us they'll give us five minutes warning whenever they want to do a rocket test. You know, it'll come, it'll come over the tannoy. Can you think? Are they actually testing these rockets then? Because even if they have the blast doors shut in the ceiling, surely when you are firing a rocket that can launch something into space, that's going to generate some heat in this room. Yeah. So there are certain things that it's just going to cook everything in the room. Yeah, that's right. It's one of those things in the book that they don't know whether the um, rocket's going to work until they actually launch it because it's so expensive. They can only really have one attempt at it. There's also another really interesting piece in the book where when M and Bond are talking about what a fine fellow Drax is, M says, yes, he's a Lonsdale man. And I looked up what a Lonsdale man is, but couldn't find what that reference could be. But of course, in the film, he's played by Michael Lonsdale. Is that, do, you, do you think that's where it just came from? They're just like, we need somebody to play this man. Well, it does say he's a Lonsdale man. Do you know what? I'm thinking... It, that might not be far from the truth. I mean, obviously, it was a British Franco production, so it made sense that you would get a French actor to play the baddie. But that might have figured into it because it just seems such a massive coincidence that this book written in 1955 calls him a Lonsdale man. Then in the film that was made 24 years later, you have Michael Lonsdale playing him. So yeah, so the book is, is a really good read. I would recommend it. The Bond girl in it is called Gala Brand, not Holly Goodhead. Um, so Holly Goodhead of all the Bond names that is the laziest it really is although Gala Brand as I said on Facebook does sound like an apple or a brand of cigarette apple flavoured cigarettes (laughs) (laughs) cigarettes it's like mmm delicious Gala Apple Brand cigarettes I think her full name in the book because he says the Gala is a bit of an odd name and I think that her full name is Tombola it's either Galilea or Galatea, or something like that. Yeah, so Gala Brand. Which I don't think has ever appeared in a Bond film as a name. But anyway, that's just a little bit of an intro to Moonraker. So why is it great, Rob? It's great, and, say, and it, was, it, was, it was definitely interesting re-watching it, because I, I, haven't seen it, I haven't seen it for a few years, because it is 
packed. And I don't think it veers into... I also read, uh, re-watched um, Octopussy. And I think Octopussy is scene by scene a much sillier film. Hmm. I think partly because Octopussy is trying to do something, I don't quote unquote, new. It's had to it's had to tie together a couple of Ian Fleming short stories and try and find a through line. The narrative isn't drawn directly from any of the books or any of the previous films. But Moonraker, I find for the most part, apart from a few notable moments, does seem to kind of strike quite an enjoyable tone where it's absurd without being too winking. Apart from the scene with the literal double taking pigeon. Um I think because it's such a remake of The Spy I Love Me, I always think it's a bit of a cheat. But there is a lot of really, really good stuff in here and a lot of really good filmmaking as well. There's also elements. So every single Bond film, and it actually sounds a bit like how they do the Mission Impossible films. They'll just brainstorm loads of ideas. You're way too many for one film. So the cable car sequence in this, when Bond has to fight Jaws on top of the cable car, was originally going to be in at the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. But Tom Mankiewicz did a pass on the script for this film that had a fight on the Eiffel Tower, Bond in a mini-jet, and also being dragged through a coral reef, which would respectively appear in um, A View to a Kill, Octopussy, and For Eyes Only. So, yeah, it does seem as if you know, when you're writing a Bond film, at least in the early drafts, you are basically just brainstorming lots and lots of set pieces that will then appear in later films. And this is They've a got film a hat with lots of little bits of paper in it. I think that yeah, they just and you just you just reach in and take a handful. <laughs> yeah, and then say, how are we going to link all this together? I think it sets out its stall from the very beginning because, of course, you have that quite amazing scene when Bond gets thrown out of the plane without a parachute and has to get the parachute from the pilot he's been betrayed and then Jaws comes after him as well, which was all shot over Southern California. That is some amazing aerial stunt work there. The thing that really gets me about that is it's it's a small plane, it's a it's a small private jet, and he somehow managed to not notice that Jaws is on board. Seven foot... Type three, Richard Kiao, he's managed not to clock him. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that. I was thinking, okay, so the hold for this plane presumably is going to be quite small. So Jaws must have been crammed into that, but he doesn't seem as if he's particularly stiff. And anyway, but I think it's one of those. I, it think, was... he, I, I think he's just come out, come, come out. You think he's just like come out, come out of the loo. Their entire plan has just been contingent on Bond not needing a pee at any point, which might be why the stewardess has to keep him distracted. Because if he goes to look in the toilet before takeoff, it's game over. Yes, it could actually be that that was quite knowing that you have this really small plane and then Jaws comes out because he is so big. That might have been a nice surprise for the audience. Because of course, the only reason why. Jaws is in this film when I think it was Cubby Broccoli who said Jaws is in this film because Jaws got more fan mail from children than James Bond did after The Spy Love Me but a lot of the fan mail said why can't Jaws be a goodie which of course at the end of this film he does become a goodie so I think that might have been like a nice surprise for the audience that in this very small private jet you suddenly have Jaws played by seven foot how tall was Richard Keel was he seven foot four or something I mean he was absolutely massive wasn't he yeah something like that but that opening sequence which actually is a pretty good cold open in terms of you've got the shuttle hijacking and the explosion of the Boeing when the shuttle launches off of it and then you go into this amazing aerial sequence and the stunt work there, even though you can kind of see that the um, stuntmen don't look anything like the actors. And at one point, the Jaws stuntman has extra long arms to try and make him look a bit bigger, (laughs) which looks a bit silly. But the stunt work in terms of what they're doing is still really impressive. 
and was achieved by doing 88 jumps. They did that. They had to do 88 jumps and basically try and snatch three seconds of film every single time. So like a shot every time. Then they would look at it and sometimes it wouldn't be very good. They'd have to do it again. And they had to design a new sort of parachute that could be packed a lot flatter so that it wouldn't show under the suits that the actors were wearing. So you couldn't see they're actually wearing a safety shoe. All this stuff in there is like, well, that's impressive. And of course, at the beginning of the film, they literally bring the house down when Jaws goes through the big top of that circus. And that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the film, I think. And the fact that they, they never explain why these people, who these people are and why they're trying to kill Bond. Because obviously somebody's hired Jaws because Jaws is a mercenary. And, and also, like, you know, there's the joke when Bond goes into money Penny's office, you know, you're, you're late. Oh, I fell out of a plane. It's like, has, does he not have to report when this sort of stuff happens? Does he not have any forms to fill out? Yeah, I think, well, does he just sort of... the thing here is that I think of all the Bond films, this is the one where, as you said, you'll get this set piece, then this set piece, then this set piece. They link in terms of they tell the story, but they don't link in terms of consequence because there's a scene on Drax's estate where he has hired a sniper to kill Bond when they're pheasant shooting and Bond shoots the sniper. So this body falls out of the tree that is then just not remarked upon after a quip saying, oh, you missed Mr. Bond. Did I? And then a body falls out. And it's like, is anyone going to report that to the police? Or is there going to be any kind of investigation because a man's just been killed in what you would think is an accidental shooting? Obviously it isn't, but... The reason that I, I kind of excuse that and the reason I think that Drax tries to kill Bond is that Drax is, is thinking very short term. He's like, final couple of days of the mission. I can kill anybody I want. I can you know do whatever I need in order to reach the port, point of launch. You know, Then it won't matter. Because, you know, when Bond turns up and he goes, see that some harm comes to him. Well, won't that be a bit bloody suspicious? <laughs> I think you're being kind, but that does hold. We're about a week away now, so therefore it's fine. Because, yeah, in the book... As I said, it's actually quite close to the end of the book that you find out that Drax is behind everything and that he's a baddie. It's 17 minutes into the film that he says, see that some harm comes to him. It's like, yep, this film just doesn't hang around. And he comes in, I think, at just over two hours. So it is very well paced for an action film. There's no fat on this film at all, even if there's also at times not a lot of plot logic. There's also um, a, a secondary henchman, a second henchman, who doesn't quite get the credit I think he deserves, um, which is the character of um, Chang, played by Toshiro Suga, who, <laughs> in the scene with the vomit comet where Bond is strapped in, and he looks so pleased with himself when it looks like Bond is going to basically pass out because of the Gs and, du- and and expire, and then so disappointed when that doesn't happen. <laughs> like, wonderfully disappointed. Yes, he looks so put out. <laughs> he really he does look genuinely like a kid at Christmas who thought he was going to get this amazing toy, opens it up and it's socks or something. And, and then he Go on. And then he leaves the booth so slowly that Bond, who's basically unconscious, still has time to clock him. Yeah, that's right. Um yeah, that guy, Toshiro Suga, was actually the producer Michael G. Wilson's Aikido instructor. So I think they thought, well, he knows how to handle himself in terms of martial arts scenes. So that's fine. He could have a fight in a glass factory and a glass museum in this film. And it's funny because I actually remember the bit with the centrifuge, the vomit comet, when it goes round and round and round, which apparently Derek Meddings, who did all the miniatures, he just begged them to be able to do that as a miniature because he thought it was such a nice idea and wanted to make a big miniature of this. And they said, no, we're going to do it full size. So, um, so yeah, he was quite disappointed by that. I remember that coming a lot later into the film, but it's about 20 minutes in. And Bond has been on Drax's estate for like about 
20 minutes at that point. <laughs> so it's like, wow, they are wasting no time in trying to off this guy. So um, who did you say was really disappointed? Chang. The uh, the name. Oh, no, no, sorry. Um, oh, no, no, the, uh, the, uh, the, the real life. The, uh... Derek Meddings, who did all the miniatures and was the, um, was the effects supervisor. Yeah, because I was going to suggest that maybe Toshiro Suga was just doing an impersonation of him. Yes, I think, yes, it was. Could you show, (laughs) could you show Toshiro that face you did, Derek? That's the one, yeah, could you do that? The one where we told you you couldn't do a miniature, yeah. (laughs) Also, another thing here is that in the centrifuge scene, you hear a dial-up tone, and I'm old enough to remember when the dial-up tone was something that sounded so kind of futuristic and space-age that, yes, that is exactly what a computer would sound like. Whereas now it sounds like the very, very early days of internet, way before broadband, when you would have to dial up and wait for six minutes to get connected to the internet. And the dial-up tone actually appears quite a few times in this film. It's like, oh, that's interesting that, yeah, I could have forgotten that was a futuristic sound at one point. You get a couple of very brief POV shots when Bond's in the centrifuge, um, when he suddenly remembers about the dark gun, about shooting the horses behind in, in M's office. And there aren't, you don't get that many instances of POV shots in Bond films. And the ones that you do get are usually Bond's been knocked unconscious and he comes to and there's a beautiful woman standing over him. That's right, yeah. This is like, I mean, it's not even like a POV shot, is it? It's like a flashback memory. It's like you don't get memory shots. And there's a really interesting way that it's done with Q where he seems to slide across the screen as the memory kind of flashes back to Bond. And that's a really interesting effect. And I would imagine was done by the editor, John Glenn, who's also the second unit director and would then go on to direct all the Bond films during the 80s, apart from Never Say Never Again, which was the unofficial Bond film for ages. Because I don't think that Lewis Gilbert was the kind of director who would have that sort of quite modern looking effect there. But it's a really, really nice touch when Q just seems to really, really quickly slide across the screen and it's only a few frames. But I do think that this film, it is the Royal Variety Performance Bond. I always call it that. It's like, we're just going to throw everything in here. We're going to go around the world. You're going to have a good time at some point. Like, yeah, don't worry about it. And the plot... Which actually I thought the plot was a bit more involved than I remembered it being. But you don't need to pay that much attention. You can still follow the, the grand beats of it or the broad beats of it and you still know where you are. But most of Bond's travelling around the globe is basically just following a series of copyright of, of like of basically like company um, designations. Like he'll get to a location, he'll see a box with a company written on it. He'll go to the location where that company is based. He'll see a box there with a different company written on it. That's exactly right. But the thing that I liked about that was that it was typically during a fight scene that you would get that information. So it seemed to be telling the story through the action. So it wasn't yeah, slowing down that much for him to just do some snooping work. It was, yeah, he would see that company in Rio in the scene when he's fighting Chang in the bell tower. And I thought, yeah, okay, this is fine. You're kind of, yeah, just getting in the big beats that you need to land with the audience. Look, yeah, so you have a big stamp saying Rio. We're off to Rio next then. But yes, it is largely done like that. This isn't The Godfather 2 in terms of its plotting. (laughs) This is the first time watching this film where I really appreciated the full extent of Bond's condescension. He is such a creep. Then you need to watch The Spy Who Loved Me again. (laughs) But yes, I know what you mean. Just the passive-aggressive one-upmanship, particularly with the Holly Goodhead character when he's constantly having to correct her on stuff or to point out just how clever he is. Well, he, he uh, he corrects Q. yes. In that first scene, when they're talking about... So what are they talking about? It's like the the Amazoka River Basin, and um, Q says one thing, and one goes, actually, I think you'll find it's da And it's like, oh, fuck off, James. Yeah. You have a tiny penis, James, don't you? You supercilious <laughs> cunt. The amount of compensation that you're doing. Yeah, you supercilious cunt. 
<laughs> it is interesting how this was once seen as educated and dashing and very refined, and now he just comes across as a bit of a prick. Um, I forget that you are more than just a very beautiful woman. It's interesting that the Lois Childs character here, is a Holly Goodhead, is, again, like a version of the Barbara Back Bond girl from The Spy Love Me. Um, I can never remember her name, is it? Amasova. Amasova. In that she's an agent, so she's a CIA agent, whereas Amasova obviously works for the KGB. She can handle herself. She's in many ways is Bond's equal, and sometimes is his superior. But there still has to be these scenes where she just melts in his arms. And, they... and at the time, it was like, you just wouldn't question that. Because it's like, well, it's a Bond film, so therefore he's always going to get the girl and he'll just he'll just do that. Whereas now it's like, there is no character motivation there for her to now just swoon in his arms. None at all. And I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe she just wants to have sex with him. I don't know. It's like... But it's the way that they... And it could be that, it could be that. But it's like, but the thing there is that it's... It's the way they become very, very passive and they don't really take a dominant role in terms of wanting to have sex with him that always seems like they've done a vault fast on that character. Even though, of course, yeah, the bit when he does leave Dr. Goodhead's hotel room in Venice and kind of sneaks out on her, but she's awake and knows what he's doing, it suggests that actually she doesn't want him around as much as he doesn't want to be around. The, the scene in Drax's lair with a bunch of beautiful women watching, bo- watching coldly as Bond grapples with a snake does feel like a huge metaphor. <laughs> Do you know what that's... uh, Yes, it does. But that's the thing about this film. So in this film, Bond gets thrown out of a plane with no parachute. He then fights a kendo expert in a glass factory. He then pilots a gondola up onto the streets of Venice and through St. Mark's Square. He then hang glides off of a waterfall when his speedboat goes over. He then has to wrestle a python. He then gets blasted into space and at no point says, I'm having the weirdest week. It's like, you are the most stoic man. He also has to um, wrestle someone on top of a cable car. It's like, are you going to say at any point, I was thrown out of a plane on Monday with no parachute and that's the least interesting thing that's happened to me this week. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's been a day. It's been a day. But that bit, yeah, with the women when he is basically lured into Drax's South American jungle lair. And they're like sirens, aren't they? And it's like Eden that he's walking into. Then you get the snake. And it's like, yeah, this film does have dream logic. Everything feels like a bit of a dream. And everything is very, very sexually charged. Although, of course, even though it is suggested that Bond has sex, you never see it. So like a dream, you're always left frustrated. But it does have like the the dirtiest joke in any of the Bond films, I think. Well, it quite simply has one of the best double entendres in human history. Would you like to say what it is? I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. Yes, at the end. <laughs> Which again is a is a replay of the end of The Spy Who Loved Me, when um, Amosova and Bond are in the pod that gets launched out of Stromberg's sinking sea base and he gets picked up by a battleship and you've got all the brass there and they look through the window and see that they're in bed together and here it's like a link up isn't it from space and they're beaming it to Buckingham Palace what's his line in that one Bond what on earth do you think you're doing keeping the British end up sir <laughs> there's a very similar thing at the end of Octopussy with Maggie Thatcher 
Oh, no, it's not. It's not the end of Octopussy. It's the end of um from from um for your eyes only with Maggie Thatcher. Basically, what I'm getting from this is, if Bond has just completed a mission, you're going to want to keep senior people away from him for a little bit, or not try and barge in with congratulations, because chances are he's going to be nobbing someone. Exactly, they never learn from this. That's right. This is like it's, a... um, the but yeah, the, but yeah, that <laughs> bit when this, what's Bond doing? And Q, I think is attempting re-entry, sir. That still makes me laugh. It's still such a great line. <laughs> and it's one of those things where it's like, well, that is filthy. And this film is a PG. Oh, well, there we go. <laughs> Actually, one of the things here that also adds the dreamlike logic, but it's really, really good. And it's a really nice touch is that Drax, and it's early on in the film, has flown out his entire French chateau and the entire estate has been flown out to california and rebuilt in the desert so the entire thing brick by brick and tree by tree has been flown um, across the atlantic and has now been rebuilt in the deserts of california that's a nice idea to show what like a megalomaniac and just how rich your supervillain is and there's a thing here where um Corin Clary plays Corinne DeFore, who's the woman that flies the helicopter with Bond in it to Drax's estate. And she has a line, what he doesn't own, he doesn't want, which I thought was a really, really good line. Apparently he owns the Eiffel Tower. Yes, but the French wouldn't let him fly that out. Yeah, the French <laughs> government refused him an export licence. That's right. Although I have to say, that scene when they're flying towards his estate and they're clearly just flying towards a painting or the uh, the set of the cockpit of the helicopter is just moving towards a painting. Because I remember that as a kid. I just remember that being real. And when I see it now, it's weird how much I've misremembered that moment. It is obviously just a painting. They say it's a matte shot. It's like, it doesn't even look like that. It just looks like a painting. But <laughs> I just, uh, I, I really love Michael Lonsdale in this film. His incredibly debonair deadpan through the whole, the whole thing. The, his, just his, his sense of contempt for proceedings. Uh, one line I, I, I particularly got this time, which uh, was a, oh yes, well, if you can get him, of course. In reference to Jaws? Yes, that's right, yes. But he also, of course, has one of your favourite lines in any Bond film. Ah, Mr Bond, you return to the tedious inevitability of an unloved season. (laughs) But another thing, actually, about the estate sequence, again, and it does show that these Bond films were just you know, looking around to other cinema at the time. So obviously have um, you have Star Wars and Close Encounters, but that scene with Corin Clary when she's being chased through the woods by Drax's Doberman, are they, is like from one of the Euro horrors that were very, very popular during the 70s. There's a director called Jean Roland. There's another director called Jess Franco who would often have these scenes in misty, very diffusely lit woods and women would often be chased through them. And that scene just seems so much from one of those films, and it's so odd to see that in a Bond film. And it just gives this film like a really, really different tone. And then you think, well, later is going to be piloting a gondola onto the streets of Venice. This is mm. the same film? It's like, okay, there are just many, many different things in this film. I think they cut the, uh, the scene in the woods where she's been chased by the dogs from a lot of the TV broadcasts. Oh, really? Yeah, just because I think the, just because I think the implication is so ugly. That's interesting, that, because I used to watch this a lot on video because my granddad loved Bond. I just had all the Bond films on video from when they were shown on telly. And I don't think it was cut then because it it just really stuck with me. But I kind of see it would be the thing that's cut now, particularly the final shot when they grab her and take her down. and The dogs jump on her back, even though it's very brief. It's also one of those things when you watch it again, you see that she's actually wearing long socks and flat shoes. Whereas in the previous scene, when she's walking into the woods, she's wearing heels without any socks on. Mm. Because, of course, she has to 
runner quite a clip. Apparently on the audio commentary, I think it's Lewis Gilbert who says at the royal premiere, when she sees that the dogs are coming towards her, instead of getting into the golf buggy and driving off, she goes into the woods. Apparently the Duke of Edinburgh said, don't go into the woods, you stupid girl. (laughs) So I, I do kind of wonder why she just doesn't get on the roof of the golf buggy. Yeah, I wonder that as well. I always, and again, it, it just goes to the dream logic of this film. There is no reason for it to run into the woods. Just either drive away in the golf buggy or get onto the roof. I mean, presumably, um, admittedly, I guess if you got onto the roof of the golf buggy, they could then just shoot you. But I mean, yeah, but you think, well, it would at least give me some time to bargain, maybe. But yes, it's. Uh, but it does lead to a very, very good sequence when she has to run through the woods. And Corin Clary was an actress who was in a lot of the Euro horrors from the 70s, and she was in a famous version of the story of O, which was based on a scandalous book and was directed by Just Jakin, who did the Emmanuel film. So she was known for these sort of parts as well, and it was actually like a big deal for her to be a Bond girl. Well, this is also a film that has both the Close Encounters and the Magnificent Seven themes in it. Yes, that's right. And that, again, is something that's taken over from The Spy Love Me, which had Lawrence of Arabia in there, famous theme from that. As if they looked at what worked and said, OK, so we're going to take that, we're going to take that. Because, of course, the gondola being piloted up onto the streets is a, is an inversion of the lotus going into the water. So you've got a car going into the water, you have a boat coming up onto the streets and being driven around. Even the bit with Corin Clary when she's flying Bond to Drax's estate is kind of an inversion there because you have the Caroline Monroe character who's a helicopter pilot from Spy Love Me. She's a baddie, whereas Corin Clary is also a helicopter pilot in service of the Bond villain, but she's a goodie. Also have to say that the scene where Bond just, without any discussion or any really kind of preamble, just kind of yeah, gets her and plants a kiss on her. These are the kind of things that set really unrealistic expectations for seduction for a generation of young boys. It's like, wow, is it really that easy? No, no, it isn't. You have to do a lot of work, even for James Bond. Although I have to say, yeah, Roger Moore, he was a strapping, good-looking guy. (laughs) And he does have real charisma, even though he obviously, he didn't have a huge range. I would say that this film, this is the film that is the crossing the Rubicon in Roger Moore's Bond, going from the arguably slightly more serious in tone earlier installments to the much more wink-wink, tongue-in-cheek that I that kind of put me off. I love Moonraker, but I don't find, I don't know, I don't find Octopussy or uh, For Your Eyes Only or A View to a Kill, I don't find them that rewatchable. I think that it's really interesting that For Your Eyes Only is a really serious Bond film. Also the first Bond film that is directed by John Glenn, not just him doing the second unit and the editing. And at the beginning of For Your Eyes Only, you have the Lotus, but someone tries to break into it and the burglar alarm is basically a bomb because they blow the Lotus up. And that seems to be making a bit of a statement that they want to go back to something a lot more serious. And For Your Eyes Only is a much more serious Bond film. Has to be said, it's not great. And I think that Moonraker is much more enjoyable. But yeah, it did seem as if for one Bond, they tried to go back to the seriousness or like, yeah, the thriller aspects of the earlier series, but then decided to ditch that for Octopussy, which, yes, he does a Tarzan call at one point when he swings through the jungle, doesn't he? He does. (laughs) It's like... The scene where they're going through the market in the tuk-tuk feels like um like sort of bingo for india cliches it's all it's like they were like it was like you know there are hot coals a bed of nails him throwing the rupees it's basically like they just thought we're never going to go back to india we're just never going to go back to india so we might as well just do it all now 
Well, that's interesting because isn't it also um, that the guy that is with, wasn't he a tennis player in real life or something? So you get some tennis stuff in there as well. Oh, yeah, he's, he's beating the bad guys away with the uh, with the tennis racket. And there's a bunch of it that's just, um, which I think works pretty well, which is just deadliest game. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. He does get hunted through the jungle, doesn't he? It's an interesting one, Octopussy, because well, Moonraker, the effects, I think are still very good. They actually went to Industrial Light and Magic and said, do you want to do the effects for our Bond film? And ILM said yes for 2% of the profits. And Cubby Broccoli said, they're never getting that. So Derek Meddings, it's up to you and your team to deliver the effects for this show, which was a real tall order. And it was done the old fashioned way in terms of the way they did it for 2001, which of course... Ken Adam worked on, where they would just shoot an element and then they would wind the film back and shoot another part of the element and expose a different part of the frame. So that scene, when all the shuttles go to dock on the space station, they wound back the film and did 48 passes to get all those different elements in. It's really clever, but it's also one of those things where it would be a week's work, and you had no idea if any of this was going to work until it came back from the lab. But you couldn't send it off to be processed in the lab until everything had been done, so you had to do the whole thing blind, and then you would get it back and find out if you'd wasted a week or not. It's a, it was a real a laborious, high-risk way of working, but it actually worked out really well and they got an Oscar nomination for it. But that seemed to be like a reaction to what was happening with Star Wars and Close Encounters. And then Octopussy, the action in Octopussy looks very different from the action in the previous Bond films, I think, because Raiders of the Lost Ark had come out at that point and they realised that there was now a new way of filming action. So action in all Bond films after that, looks very much more like a Raider-style action than it did before. Yeah, there's the uh, the, the assault on Octopussy's palace with the guys, which is very Raiders, which in all fairness is very, very Raiders, with the, you know, the guy with the uh, the blades. I, I'm sure there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an actual term for it. I'm, the, the, the guy with the blades on the... It's essentially the deadly yo-yo. Yes, that's right, yeah. Which is like Gogo Yubari from Kill Bill. Bill, yes. <laughs> And yeah, I mean, Octopussy, I think stuff like the gorilla, you know, when Bond's hiding in the gorilla costume or when the car track tread just happens to be the same width as the train track or when he's riding with the German stereotypes or dressed as a clown or the Tarzan yell. There's one part where he basically, you know, he basically take undoes like the the belt, the buckle on the elephant. So the guy will fall off the top of it. So the platform will be unstable. But when he's running off into the woods, having done that. There's a guy who tries to stop him, and Bond just basically dead legs him on the way past. Like, <laughs> like, like you know when you were a kid and somebody would come up to you and you just try and knee you in the leg really hard. Yeah. Okay. He, ba- he basically just does that to a guy <laughs> on the way past. Yes. It's interesting because I always remember Octopussy as being. That's I always remember Moonraker as being the silliest of the more Bond films. But I might have to go back and watch Octopussy again. Octopussy has a Barbara Woodhouse joke in it. Did you even get that when it happens when he tells the tiger to sit? No, I did. I, I questioned that. I ah, uh... uh, so that's the thing is that that's it's such a even at the time. No one outside of the UK would get that joke. So basically, Barbara Woodhouse was a very, very famous dog trainer from the early 80s. Her catchphrase was sit. And that, to show how starved we were for culture in the early 80s, was everyone would know that that meant that Barbara Woodhouse was training a dog and she was a bit of a national treasure. The fact that he does it to a tiger, of course, is funny. But it's like, who is going to get that outside of the UK? And now, of course, it's completely lost because no one knows who Barbara Woodhouse is anymore. So uh, there'll always be this pod. as a That's right. Yes, we can always remind people. Sorry, as a, as a relinquiry of, of obscure knowledge. And, and That's right, <laughs> yes. 
the end of Octopussy has a very good aerial sequence when they're on that plane. And that's really good, even though, again, you can see that they are stuntmen. Just the stunts they're doing in terms of holding onto that plane, yes, they will have wires and stuff, but there's some good stunt work there in terms of the fight they have on the outside of the plane. But yeah, the um, the cable car, when they go to Brazil and they have the fight on the cable car with Jules, apparently they'd only negotiated with the sons who didn't own the cable car company that they could shoot on there. And it was the father that owned it and he came by to just have a look at what was going on. He knew there was going to be a film there and it was going to be a Bond film, but he came by and someone had left a storyboard out and he was looking at what this sequence was going to be. And when he saw that the cable car was going to crash at the end of the sequence, he said, no, you can't do that. You can't show my cable car crashing because no one will want to ride on my cable car anymore. And it stopped production for a day or so in terms of he just wouldn't bend on this. So the producers spoke to their lawyer and said, well, we've got a contract, so can't we get into litigation? And the lawyer said, litigation is like a knife fight in the dark in Brazil. So you're going to have to find a way around this. They basically just had to sweet talk him into letting them do it. Of course, the bit when it actually crashes in was all done in London. But it was like a full-size set that they built that they then crashed. But that's a good sequence as well. And the bit there when the... Because the bit when they're fighting on, on top of the cable car, they weren't wired at that point. They weren't actually wired to the cable car because it would impede their movements. The bit when he slides off and is holding on, he does have a wire at that point. He has a single filament wire that was holding him on, the stuntman. And it's like, I do kind of miss these stunts. These big... These insanely reckless. <laughs> well, yeah, in terms of like these very, very dangerous. But there's something about it when you can see that that's been done for real that is... I think, a bit better than CGI. Even though you can often see that it's not the actor doing it. Not only is the face different, but sometimes the shape of them is different. <laughs> the, the, the physique. Yeah, indeed. I've now reached a point in my life, I'm glad to say, where the fact that they give Bo- Jaws a tiny blonde girlfriend doesn't even annoy me anymore. Yes, I think that's quite nice as well. She's called Dolly. She's never actually called Dolly, but she's billed as Dolly. But it's one of those things where I remember her being really gawky and a real plain Jane when I saw it as a kid. Because she's wearing glasses, basically. Uh, And lots of people misremember that she's wearing braces. She's not wearing braces, but it would make sense for her to wear braces because of jaws and stuff like that as well. But yeah, but it's one of those things where lots of people misremember that she wears braces. She doesn't, she just wears glasses. But the thing is, in the 80s, if you wore glasses, it meant you weren't pretty. (laughs) Here, you watch this film again, it's like, oh wow, she's stunning. This is what passes for ugly, an ugly woman in a Bond film a slightly shorter woman because she's obviously like a lot shorter than all the other women because when Drax talks about that there can be perfect specimens or no sorry no imperfect specimens on his space station and Jaws and Dolly obviously are not perfect because Dolly looks up at the other woman standing next to her yeah okay so the fact that you're five foot three means that you're not perfect okay fair enough what an odd time 1979 was I sort of made a list of uh, what I could, what could potentially be Bond's silliest moments throughout the uh, the whole of the franchise. And in all fairness, it, pr- it you know it starts earlier than this, but the, the the first one that came immediately to mind is Goldfinger. It is the scene where he's got the laser going up between his legs, and you know it's it's very iconic and it really set a tone for Bond. But it is deeply silly. Oh, it is, and it also set out the thing that would then be spoofed in Austin Powers. Shoot him. He's just there, Dad. Just shoot him now. Don't leave him alone here because he'll obviously escape. And there's a lot of that in Moonraker where it's like, why are you leaving him in this room to be burnt to a cinder by 
the engines of your space shuttle. You could say there's like a sexual power play thing going on there as well in that this big phallus is going to basically scorch Bond to death, but wouldn't it just be easier to shoot him? Which of course is always the big cliche, but then you don't have a movie. Yeah, in terms of the silly stuff in the Bond films, I mean, it's it's interesting, I think, because as effects got better, the films could become sillier. So the earlier films don't seem as silly. I mean, there's a bit in uh, You Only Live Twice when a car gets picked up by a big magnet on a helicopter which I think at the time would have been, oh, wow, look at that. But yeah, it doesn't seem as impressive anymore. Sorry, that's the silly thing from You Only Live Twice. That's the thing that you remember from that film as being the silly thing. Why, are you thinking of Little Nelly? <laughs> Little Nelly? Um, but Little Nelly was a gyrocopter. That was a thing. Certain disguise choices? Oh, yeah, and they're, yeah, there's always going to be. Well, that's not silly. That's just uh, yeah, racially unfortunate now. <laughs> Yes, there are lots of uh, Asian eyes in that film. This film had lots of, obviously, male chauvinism, but there's not any unfortunate racial elements to this film that I can remember, I don't think. Even in Brazil. Well, in Brazil, they just... It, the only thing they really touch on in Brazil that has, you know, that's anything to do with Brazil is Carnival, and they just... And I think, that's, I think that's a really tense little sequence. It is, and it's actually interesting the way they did that, because they shot that a year before they shot the rest of the film, because Carnival was... Uh, happens in was it February? So they had to shoot it the previous year because in terms of their schedule, they would have to go to Brazil in January to shoot. So they basically had to go and just get lots and lots of B-roll from the previous carnival and then restage it in January for the next year and try and match it together, which I think it does enough. And it is a good sequence. I mean, it is, again, again, it's that weird kind of like dream nightmare logic that this massive clown will come and follow you and try and get you because obviously Jaws is um, disguised as a big clown, isn't he? Yeah, and it's interesting to me that that was the scene that, that that's the first time that Bond and at that point the Bond girl encountered Jaws in the current mission mm. and I'm wondering actually if the Jaws introductory sequence well both the pre-credit sequence and the sequence at the airport were added later on in the development process because Jaws's introduction in that scene as kind of this nightmarish figure is much more in keeping with um, Spy Who Loved Me it's interesting and it makes sense what you're saying I think that he was always intended to be in the opening because he was so popular and plus the opening was, it, it was so logistically hard to do that I think they always factored that Jaws was going to be part of it. But you're right in terms of he does seem like a very different Jaws in that scene. But it's only really that scene that, that is that menacing, isn't it? Because the rest of the scene is just this big brute. But in that scene is vampiric and he goes in for the neck, which is what he does in um, Spy Who Loved Me. He, you know, as you said, he kind of like, he's always uh, yeah, chomping on the jugular. But of course, here he doesn't get her. I actually misremembered it and thought that he did get her, but he, he gets swept away by the carnival. And when he gets swept away from the carnival, he resists for about a microsecond and then basically just goes with him and just starts having a bit of a boogie. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting when he takes off the head, off the clown head. Richard Keel looks like a cross between Quentin Tarantino and Michael Shannon. He just has that look about it. Definitely, like, I definitely get the Michael Shannon. But also the Tarantino, just that kind of like slightly... Uh, exaggerated features it's yeah it's i think if you were to put shannon and tarantino into a fly telepod and add like a another two feet in height or something then richard keel would step out and the one the one line he gets which is uh well here's two eyes i think that's his, his actual voice he does sound incredibly suave delivering that line he does, isn't it? I always thought, as a kid, I remember thinking, why is that his voice? Because he sounds like a romantic lead. I'll try and get a clip of that because it is really, really nice the way that he delivers it. And they go out of their way, it has to be said, to make sure that the audience know that him and Dolly survived the space station blowing up. 
even though I'm not sure how they do because they're in a compartment that doesn't seem like an escape pod it just seems um, like a bit of the space station it's like well isn't that going to burn up on re-entry but yeah I think it gets said twice that they're going to be alright yeah. well the, fir- the first time that the first time they say that they're going to be alright one's like oh don't worry it's only 100 miles to earth and then the space station explodes which feels like a gag which feels like you know womp womp I think you see them go off before then though and then, yeah, in the mission control, you then hear that they've been picked up, which presumably was to hedge their bets that the Jaws could then come back. But I think it was deemed at that point, Jaws has had his moment now. We can't keep doing this sort of thing. I think it could be getting silly. But he would have fitted into Octopussy, though. I think you're right. I think he would have definitely fitted into that, okay? Yeah, but I think but I think uh, you've given him an, an arc, a heroic arc, and then you'd, you'd, you couldn't bring him back as, like, Bond's... You, I don't know, you'd, you'd either have to bring him back on the side of the angels, or you'd have to make him a villain again, in which case you basically would, I don't know, either you say he's now got a, uh, a spouse and he's continuing with the murdering, or or she gets killed, and uh, I guess it's just one of those things where it's like, you know what, we've done a nice little thing with this character, I think we've got the mileage out of them, let's send them on their way. I think with Octopussy, you could have had him in almost like a cameo, just in one scene where he has to help Bond in an action scene or something, and be a good guy. Yeah, keep him as a good guy, just have him for one scene. I think that would have worked quite nicely to have Jaws back for Octopussy. It's the, it seems like the, the only films after Moonraker, uh, the only film that you could do that yeah, would be Octopussy, because even A View to a Kill doesn't seem to um, to really fit having Jaws in it. Although, yes, A View to a Kill is the film... That's the film where Roger Moore is just way too old for any of this. It's like, it's actually a very progressive film of Utah Kill in terms of just how old the cast is. It's an old people's film. There are so many old people. It's only really Christopher Walken who's young in that film. And Grace Jones probably was young. But then again, she might have been 3,000 years old because I think that Grace Jones is just this goddess that exists throughout time and space. Uh, but Lois Maxwell... Yeah, it's luckily, it's luckily that... It's lucky that Sean Connery wasn't in that one, otherwise they'd been fighting to the death. Yeah, that's, well, that's the thing, is that you do watch it thinking, oh, oh be careful, James, because, yeah, your knee's going to give now. And then it just cuts to shots of the stuntmen, where it's, it just cuts to another person. It's like, is that supposed to be James Bond? Jesus, because that's just another person, um, a much younger person. And I think the Roger Moore knew that it was time to call it quits after a view to a kill when I think that Tanya Roberts is the Bond girl in that film. And one day her mum was visiting set and said, oh, Roger, I'm younger than you. And my daughter's the Bond girl in this one. <laughs> and oh, I think it's time to call it a day. Yes, maybe not a good look. I have to admit, I did get a lot out of this film just in terms of the enjoyment of watching it and the enjoyment of the way that it was put together in terms of the miniatures. The miniatures are good in this. The scenes of the space shuttle hangars, yeah, they're all miniatures, but they do look good. The detail on them is quite amazing. I'm trying to think, is there anything else in this film that I... Oh, actually, yes. If you go to 52 minutes into this film when Bond is in Holly Goodhead's uh, hotel room in Venice where Bond has got his back to camera and the focus is on Lois Childs. Roger Moore's hairpiece is not sitting well at that point. It just has this weird angle on his head where he's got like a diagonal line going down across the back of his hairline or his head. Are we are we sure it's Roger Moore wearing his hairpiece and not somebody standing in wearing his hairpiece for him? It seems to be Roger Moore. Like, and because, because Roger's gone to his trailer. Can you just pop this on? Yeah, because you say that because there are some wide shots where it's like that is not Roger Moore running. Um, <laughs> that's just someone else running. But yeah, I think it's Roger Moore and he is wearing a pretty bad hairpiece or he's just not sitting right at that point. 
But also, Roger Moore, they had to do other filming in Brazil for a week because uh, he had a gallstone, which meant that he had to spend a week in hospital in France and then come a week later. So that scene when he gets off of Concord is pretty much when he arrives in Brazil because they had to shoot so quickly as soon as he arrived. Um, and they had a press conference when he passed the gallstone to say that he was well again. It's like, oh, okay. And he said, yes, he heard it at 5.45am, I heard the clink of stone against ceramic in the toilets or something like that. So, oh. And there were some other things. Oh, yeah. Sorry, just go back to The Spy Love Me again, because this film does remake The Spy Love Me. So the guy looking at the wine bottle in St. Mark's Square in Venice as the gondola goes by, is the same guy who looks at the wine bottle on the beach in The Spy Love Me when the lotus comes out of the water. There's a nice gag, though, with the painter who's painting, I think it's like either the scene or like or a portrait for a tourist, and then goes back to ink the canvas some more, but it's been swept away by the gondola. That's the stills photographer from the film. I thought that was like a, a nice little cameo. I, I am the guy in the uh, with the uh, on the funeral barge that goes past who pops up with inexplicably knives rather than say a gun because you know the thing about a bullet is worst case scenario they can't fire it back at you. <laughs> Um, but when, uh, but then you're kind of thinking maybe they wanted it to be quite quiet and like a bit of a yeah, stealthy assassination to begin with because they use guns after, don't they? A silenced gun. Yeah. I mean, the Bond films have stressed the effic- the uh, the unrealistic uh, efficacy of uh, of silences. But then when they go under the bridge and the uh, and the coffin gets knocked off and it's floating there in the water, and you've got the guy with the cigarette who's clearly you know not in clearly, clearly you know a heavy smoker, yes. and, the, and the and the coffin passes under the bridge and he sees it, and he just kind of goes <clears throat> and throws the cigarette away as in that you know so it's a really nice little memento mori. I it's, it's sort of like I think the better version of the um of the wine bottle moment. Yeah, indeed it is, isn't it? I actually really quite like that scene with the coffin because it's so odd and unusual. Kind of has a touch of live and let die in there. But it also just reminds me of a lot of the Italian Bond clones that came out in the late 60s, early 70s that would often have those sort of scenes in there. And again, also adds to the dream logic of this film that you're going to be on a gondola and then a water bound funeral processions going to go by but a dead body is seemingly going to appear from it but it's going to be an assassin who's going to pop up out of the coffin to try and get you then you turn your gondola into a hovercraft and pile it onto the streets i mean that's a dream isn't it it's like that's the kind of shit that happens in a dream oh uh, yeah this is don't look now it is it is it's like it's a lot freakier than don't look now in terms of the stuff that happens one of the things that amazed me about this film i was doing some research for it is that it was written it was co-written by christopher wood who surprise surprise also wrote the spy love me and i hope he got paid half his salary for this because it's like christ did you recycle a lot christopher wood oh my god, was also worked under the pseudonym of Timothy Lee. And Timothy Lee wrote the books and the screenplays for all the Confessions movies, those sex comedies from the 70s with Robin Asquith. So Christopher Wood did the Confession series and also The Spy Love Me and Moonraker, at that point the two most successful Bond films ever. It's like... I can't believe that. (laughs) Have you ever seen any of the Confessions films? I have not. I I am aware of them. They're like X-rated carry-on. They're awful, but they're fascinating. They're fascinating because they're Columbia films, so they were Hollywood studio films. And at the time, they were really embarrassing to the British film industry that this was what was being made and what was being funded by the Hollywood studios. But someone, I can't remember who it was, but someone high up in the British film industry said, look, it's better to be making shit than making nothing at all. But they are... I mean, they make Bond look like the 
epitome of progressive politics in terms of how they treat sex and race. Sex more than race, but yeah, it's <laughs> they are terrible. I just cannot believe that Christopher Wood wrote those books and films and then did a couple of Bond films. It's like, how you must have a great agent or just be a very good networker to have got these gigs. Jesus. Are there any other scenes in there? Oh, the pythons. Yeah, the pythons were... I think they got two of them for the scene and they were 24 feet and weighed 400 pounds. So as someone who doesn't like snakes... They, 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 they got two of them for when one of them was inevitably killed during filming. <laughs> yeah. The guy who wrestles them, because there is like an actor wrestling a real python, isn't there, at one point? And again, it doesn't matter that you can see that it's not Roger Moore because it's just quite an impressive thing that he's doing anyway. Although I did look at it through my fingers because I can't stand snakes but it is an impressive thing that's happening there but the reason why the fake snake that roger moore is fighting doesn't look anything like the real snake is because i think they sent the model makers off to london zoo to have a look at a python to see what it kind of felt like and what it should be like and they said but this isn't going to be the kind of python that we're going to use in the film and they sent them a photo of the pythons that they were using but that message didn't get through so they basically made it the color of the snake that they'd seen in london zoo which is why it's a very different color to the real snake so the snake seems to change color whenever it cuts between real and fake but it's still a horrible sequence and then again as soon as it's over that's it on something else now what's happened now oh now you're going to get incinerated by uh, the rockets from this space shuttle fair enough <laughs> but it's fine because you've got to go into space fair enough blase bond casual casual bond what did you think of the space stuff I, th- I thought the space stuff was really impressive I think it actually holds up as you say the um, the technique that was used to create it obviously very time consuming but very effective for it hmm and, you know, it does have the pew-pew lasers. and But even even given that, I really like those sequences. I especially like the one-on-one corridor confrontation by the airlock between Drax and Bond. Yes, that is a good one. I, it's funny thing he says, well, why don't you take one giant leap for mankind or something as Bond pushes him into the airlock and then blasts him. Flushes him out the airlock, yeah. <laughs> Which is really, I mean, I know that the Drax is a wrong and has tried to wipe out all of human life on Earth. Still pretty cold-blooded. It is cold-blooded, it really is. It's like, shouldn't he stand trial for this? No. Well, Bond has just shot him with a poison dart. Yes, he has. That's another thing, actually, because you have the explosive tip ones he uses in, in the centrifuge, and he uses an explosive tip one at another point that I can't actually remember now. It just seems as if he's very lucky in terms of the ordering that he gets the explosive tip versus the poison dart, because so I right, so he just knew there was going to be a poison tip thing now. So I think there's uh, some banging coming from upstairs. So he just knows there's going to be a poison tip thing now. Okay, fair enough. The weightless stuff is okay. It actually held the world record for the most people on wires in any space at that point. (laughs) It's kind of, it's all right, although it's obvious that it's all slow motion and they seem to be walking a lot more than they would do in zero gravity, but yeah. And the fact that certain parts of the station, like almost when you go through a door, go from gravity to no gravity, I'm like, pretty sure that's not how this works. Yeah, I think that's the thing that looks the most wrong now because we can do weightlessness so well it's basically walking in slow motion on the levels on the you know the gantry or the floor and uh yeah is there anything else that uh as a lois child's like many bond girls didn't really have much of a, a big career after this she's in a very good segment of creep show 2 which isn't a very good film but she's in the i think the one good segment in that where she plays someone who runs over this homeless person and it's a hit and run but it keeps coming back from the dead to try and get her and that was pretty good do you remember when Casino Royale came out and everyone criticised it for the amount of product placement that was in it? Oh yeah, there's lots of British Airways in this, isn't there? 
this. I mean, they actually reference it on the audio commentary that this is a bit of a product placement heavy film. You've got Seven Up, you've got British Airways, you've got Christian Dorr, you've got Marlborough, Air France, Seiko. And I think the Seven Up must have paid the most money because they are so prominently placed during the cable car scene. It's like, wow, you really paid here, didn't you? <laughs> there is a lot of product placement here. And a quick shout out to Morris Binder, who, of course, was the guy that did all the credit sequences for the Bond films. Apparently, they were always the last thing to be delivered because he took so long to do them. And they would be delivered two days before the premiere. And apparently the Bond films, which is really ironic for No Time to Die, because not only has it been moved back because of the coronavirus, but it also was like infamously delayed and delayed and delayed because it seemed like a cursed project. The Bond films would have immovable release dates because of the royal premiere it would have to be ready to be the royal premiere film that year. It would be like, yes, we have to meet this date because Her Majesty is expecting to watch a Bond film on that Tuesday. So (laughs) I think this one, the opening credit sequence was delivered a couple of days before the premiere. Apparently there was one film where the opening credit sequence was delivered the day of the premiere and they had to splice it into the print and then show that in the evening. So literally, that, I mean, it was still point, wet. There's no oversight with the, like, you could put whatever the fuck you want in there. Yeah, indeed. And that's another thing, actually, that's really interesting you say that, because Lewis Gilbert said that you would go to watch these being filmed, but apparently, yeah, they'd be being made when um, yeah, lots of the production was going on as well. And I think it'd be really interesting to just read how one of these old Bond films was made, because the logistics of having these different things being shot around the world at the same time, and just the scheduling of that, is amazing. But also, like, when you go along to watch the filming of those credit sequences, presumably you're taking the title sequences, presumably you're taking a lot on faith. Mm. Because when you're filming the composite element, it's just a naked lady bouncing on a trampoline. That's right. And that's what Lewis Gilbert says on the audio commentary for Moonraker. Yeah, you wouldn't know how it would come out. You Obviously, there would be storyboards and you get like an idea from the things that you would go watch being shot in the studio. But a lot of it would be chemical and photographic. So you would just have to take it on faith that Morris was going to deliver something that was quite impressive. And he never let them down. But... Yeah, you didn't know what you were going to get until you saw the final thing. And that would sometimes be a couple of days before the premiere or the day of. So therefore, you just had to take what you were given, which is, again, is quite extraordinary. And it also has to be said that in these days of DVD, um, in these days of Blu-ray, I think you see more than you saw back then at, at the cinema even. I mean, there is a shot at the opening. Cause I want to spy love me again after I watched Moonraker because I was in the mood for another Bond film. And there's a shot at the opening of the spy you love me in the opening credits on the blu-ray where you just see the nipples that is a topless woman there <laughs> it's interesting this is still a pg because that is much clearer than i've ever seen the opening credits for this film and the spy you love me was my bond film when i was a kid it was the first one i saw and i just couldn't believe how amazing it was and it never looked that clear <laughs> so um, yes it is very interesting a lot of the things that were being done there anyway um One of the weird things I think is that for a film about Bond going into space, it has the song, which is by Shirley Bassey, who did Goldfinger, which is just one of the belting Bond songs, is a ballad. And it's always kind of, it's never really remembered because it really isn't that memorable, I don't think. Yeah, I think she was brought in after, I think some, I think it was Johnny Mathis had to, had to drop out. That's almost it. Yeah. So they wanted Johnny Mathis. Because, of course, Johnny Mathis is one of the great crooners, or was one of the great crooners. But John Barry, who did the score, 
And his score for this film, I think, is great, particularly when they go into space. That very deep brass theme they have for space, I think, is one of the great John Barry themes, and I'll I'll get it to play a bit of it. But they went to LA, apparently, and they recorded with Johnny Mathis, and it just didn't work. They said, I don't know why, but he just wasn't on form. And they suddenly realised that it wasn't going to work having Johnny Mathis sing this song. And I think that John Barry... And I could be wrong here, but I think that Shirley Bassey was there as well or something. She was doing something else. And he said, oh, you're just the person I need. Can you do the new Bond song? And that's how she got involved. It's not a particularly memorable song, though, I don't think. No, it's nice. It's, I, I I, can sort of remember the refrain. But, I mean, yeah, it, it's obviously um, Nobody Does It Better was uh, Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. Um, so go on. I'm trying to think of, you know, do uh, what are the most memorable Bond films themes apart from... Uh, Goldfinger and I mean a lot of them do tend to be based around the name of the film well they do and I always I actually misremembered that this one is called Moonraker I thought that the song in this was called something else but it's actually called Moonraker All Time High I think is in Octopussy and again that's not really like a very memorable one either and actually as a kid always remembered the Bond song for Moonraker being Moonraker (laughs) Basically just being Goldfinger again, which couldn't be further from the truth. I was so wrong. He's the man, the man who rakes the moon (laughs) with a giant spoon. (laughs) Why didn't they go for that? Do you expect me to talk, Moonraker? I expect you to rake the moon. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so um, but think of the great songs. We've got all the time in the world. That's a great one. That should have been in a much better Bond film because on Her Majesty's Secret Services, I just don't know why that gets the love it does. From Russia with Love with Matt Monroe, that's a great one. A View to a Kill, of course, that's a great one as well. The Living Daylights. There are more good Bond songs than there are bad ones. Uh, and Moonraker's not a bad one, it's just, I think, a bit of a forgettable one. Yeah, and, you know, Pierce Brosnan's obviously first one. Golden Eye's great. Tomorrow Never Dies is good. Um... I quite I quite like the world is not enough. Again, these are I, I, these are not Bond songs I've got any objectivity on because these were the Bond songs from when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> you know the what's what the new the new Bond songs. Die another day is pants, but yes. it's just guess I'll die another day. Yeah, yeah, shit that one. Quantum of Solace is better than you remember it being the song for that. The only version of the Quantum of Solace song I remember is the spoof one that's on YouTube. Where he can't remember what he keeps on failing. The guy who's doing it keeps on failing to remember what it's called. It's, it's a Sontum of Qualis. I've gotten it wrong. Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> Spectre, I kind of remember that one. Obviously, Skyfall is one of the great ones. Spectre is the Sam Smith one. Yes, it is, isn't it? That's right, yeah. I think Skyfall's great, but I do think that, along with the Spectre one, and now the No Time to Die, they are all slightly dirgy. Yeah, there is a Bond sound that they all just go for, that kind of yeah, big orchestral swell and lots of brass and very operatic, yeah. But I would still rather have that than Die Another Day because, as you said, <laughs> that song is just... It does seem like something that was just a demo for another song that she went, yeah, that's fine, we'll just put... We'll just change the chorus to Die Another Day for that, that's fine. Yes, Madonna doing a Bond song should have been better than that. But then you see Madonna singing in her bath now and you realise that a lot of the mystique has gone. <laughs> Yes, so it cost $33 million to make, it grossed $210 million, it was the most successful Bond film to that point. 
Yes, I have to admit, I did enjoy it more this time than I think I've enjoyed it the previous times when I just wasn't in the mood for the silliness. Uh, this time I, I found a lot more to be impressed by. I pretty much, my enjoyment of this film has remained fairly consistent over the years. You know, you know, films that you really love when you're when you're young and there are maybe bits of it that as you get older you're not as, you're not as keen on and stick out for you. At this point, again, I, I'm just, I think I, uh, yeah, I've, I've reached the point of being remarkably zen about the about the Bond franchise, you know, a franchise I was, I was absolutely obsessed about. Actually, I'm now much the same about Bond as I am about uh, Doctor Who. Really? Well, because you have based your life around Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'm hoping the new one's good. If it's not, that is that won't be the end of the world. I will moan about it for a couple of weeks and then periodically forever after. But you know what? It will be fine. I think it will be better than Spectre, which I think is a disappointing Bond film because it's so dull. Moonraker's not dull. It's a bit of a chore to watch Spectre. And Moonraker isn't. I mean, you know, as you said, it comes in at two hours and it doesn't stop. It just doesn't stop. It is all told through action. You need someone like Roger Moore, who is unflappable, to carry that, to be that cool, calm centre at the middle of this um, really, really silly storm that's happening. Whereas Spectre, I think everyone is taking it very, very seriously, which means that actually it all just comes across as dull. You say, you say yes, Spectre's a royal variety performance. Yeah, but a really bad year where they couldn't get the acts they wanted, so they had to get all the secondary and all the tertiary acts instead. But uh, but it's um it's I think it's a royal variety performance where they're all acts that you've already seen before, and they're just trying to loosely recreate them using like most of the most of the key sequences from Spectre, like the train fight with Hinks and Bond, uh, are just reiterations of stuff we've seen elsewhere, and probably and better the first time around. Indeed, I mean, even the opening it harkens back to Live and Let Die with the skeleton mask and stuff. Is there anything else about Moonraker that you'd like to say? No, I think, I think that's it for me. It's been very nice talking about it. It has been, actually. It's, yeah, it's a really, really good fun film. But to end it, I think that we have to go back to something that you said on a podcast a few years ago. And you might not have even said it on podcasts. It might have been when we had a drink afterwards. For your idea how the Bond franchise could be kept fresh. Do you remember what you said? I don't think my opinion on it has changed greatly. My attitude at this point is, firstly, you know, I'd love to see some actual period Bond films. I'd love to see the 1940s sort of baptism of fire style story with the young, the young Bond. Um, but then, you know, my thoughts after that is, let anybody who wants one have one. Let, you know, we can have the, the Tarantino Bond and we can have the Christopher Nolan Bond and just give these guys creative freedom. Lots of really talented writers, directors, actors who've grown up, you know, with Bond and a love of the character and a love of the franchise. Yeah, so at this point, it's just kind of let them have a go. You'll, you'll, the worst case scenario, you'll end up with an interesting film. They don't all have to be $200 million budgets. It's like, okay, this year, this guy's doing it. And next year, we'll, you know, if you don't like it, we'll get uh, next year, you'll have a new director and a new direction and a new Bond. And that's a really nice idea. I think that your original idea was that you would have the canon Bond. So the things like Skyfall and Casino Royale, you would have that. Yes, every three years, you'd get the canon Bond. But then parallel to it, you would have a Tarantino Bond or a Edgar Wright Bond, or something like that. So it would be Bond made by a director who wasn't going to deliver what you would think the Bond film has to be for the canon Bond, but it would be their own spin on it. I think that's a really interesting idea. And you could set it, as you said, at any time. Bond is a product of the post-war era, so I think it has to be after World War II. But as the Cold War's happening, yeah, Bond as the Cold War is just beginning, as the Iron Curtain's just beginning to fall, that would be a good Bond to see. That seems like a really nice idea. And it could even be that you have the big canon bonds for the big cinema films, 
but the other Bonds, they're Netflix premieres or something like that. So they, so you could have a, like a big Bond film for Christmas on Netflix, but it's directed by Quentin Tarantino or it's directed by a more offbeat director. That seems like a way to keep 007 fresh, but... I don't think they ever do it, but it's a nice idea, though. I think because EA, MGM, it is still considered an incredibly valuable property. I think we're more likely to get a Marvel film on going straight to Disney+. Plus. If if that happens, I'd say anything can happen. Yeah. Well, Marvel, they've got all those series, aren't they? And and I'm sure that those series are going to look quite like the films at some point as well, in terms of the budget that's going to be spent on them. Yeah, so we will see. And hopefully at some point we will see... No Time to Die. We'll have to see if it's going to be in November. We'll see. Yes. When is No Time to Die? Yes, that's right. Well, actually, to go back to the Mulan podcast that we did, have you seen that Disney now say that July 24th is going to be when Mulan's going to be released? Uh, strong. It's a, I'm wondering what information they've got that everyone else doesn't. Just what I was thinking, because it's like, um, that seems quite soon considering what's happening in the world right now, particularly in the States. I don't think they're anywhere near to their peak in terms of infections and deaths. So we will have to see what happens there. Also, I think that even when we are allowed outside again, everything's going to be staggered. I don't think the cinema chains will be allowed to have a full house for months after they're allowed to open. I think it will be one of those things where they have they can sell maybe 60% of the tickets, but you can't sell 100% of them because you have to ensure there is space for people to be apart from each other. I think we're going to get some of that. So, And that would definitely be the kind of thing that's happening in the summer. So even if they can release Mulan then, it won't be playing to all the people that could go and see it because I don't think they're going to be allowed to fill the cinemas. So... I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, it's, you know, interesting times continue. Yes, they do. Interesting times continue. We do need a bond right now to uh, to sort it out because, of course, Moonraker has a touch of the of the coronavirus in terms of Drax's evil plan that will target humans but not really affect the plant life or animal life. Although I did read that Tiger has now got it at the Bronx Zoo. But yeah, so we need we need a James Bond. There's never one around when you need him. So to finish, should we do plugs. Yes. Uh, if you'd like, you can follow me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace or find my sporadic writing at www.ofallthefilmsites.com. And for me, you can find me on Twitter at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find my writing at electric-shadows.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Movie Robcast. More importantly, you can listen to it if you go to anchor.fm slash moviewrobcast. You can listen to it there or you can see all the different platforms that we're on. And we are on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, but we're on others as well. So go to anchor.fm slash moviewrobcast and you will see where we are. Cool. Well, as you introed us, do you want to outro us? Thank you everyone very much for listening and we'll be back with you soon. The Movie Robcast will return. Oh,
this is the first joint venture between our two countries. I'm having it patched directly to the White House and Buckingham Palace. Well, I'm sure Her Majesty will be fascinated. We have audiovisual. Ah, at last. My God, what's Bond doing? I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. 